was a song I heard the other day that was playing on one of the girls' shows, and I, I listen to those every now and again because I have a few girls at home. And uh, the song really caught my attention, not because it was great, because it wasn't, but uh, it was because of the lyrics of the song. The song was entitled, It's All About Me, and I'm not going to play it for you, I'll spare you that, okay? But I do want to read the chorus to you. It says, it's all about me, it's all about me. Do you know why it's called, it's all about me now? Oh yeah, me, myself, and I. It's all about me. You know it's all about me. It's all about me, 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 me. I'm sure a lot of time and effort went into that song. What do you think? But many of us, as as Christians, when we hear that, we think that accurately reflects the mentality of the world today, don't we? I mean, this is a very worldly perspective to have, isn't it? But let's be honest, believers, for just a minute. How many of us think in this way when it comes to our spiritual lives? Like I said last week, when thinking about our spiritual life, many of us have a tendency to view it with ourselves at the center. We think it's all about me. It's all about my personal walk with Christ. It's all about my growth and godliness. It's all about me and my Lord. It's all about God's will for my life. It's all about me. As we said last week, we have a tendency to view the church in this way as well, don't we? Many of us, we view the church with ourselves at the center. We believe the church exists and only exists to serve me. And when many come and visit churches, they visit with this mentality. What can you do for me? What can you do for my family? What can you do to benefit me and my family? What can you do to make my life better? How can you make my kids' lives better? And if we're not satisfied with the answers, we either go elsewhere or we go at our Christian life on our own. This is a mentality that many have when it it comes to the Christian life and the church. And like we said last week, though there is an individual aspect to Christianity, and though the church should grow people in godliness and families in godliness, that's what it says in our mission statement, right? It's what it's all about. Listen, folks, though that's the case, Scripture is also clear that there is a group aspect, a corporate part of our Christian faith as well. Scripture clearly teaches that we, as believers, are simply one among many and that we need one another. And though we are blessed by being a part of the larger body of believers, Scripture is also clear that we should contribute and be a blessing to others. If you have your Bibles, turn to Ephesians chapter 2. We are continuing our series through the book of Ephesians this morning. Today we're going to finish the passage we began last week. In the verses we looked at last week, remember we only looked at two. We didn't get very far. And in our passage for today, Paul's focus is upon believers, plural. Corporately, believers. Believers knowing who they are, 
collectively as a team, as a body, as a church, so that they can in turn walk worthy together. Now, that's easier said than done, isn't it? Because like we said last week, the churches in Paul's day, like the churches today, they're they're extremely diverse, aren't they? Made up of people from all different walks of life, with different backgrounds, different personalities, different giftings, different prejudices, right? The churches in Paul's day were the same. Paul addresses two groups in particular in this passage that had a history. He addresses the Jews and the Gentiles. These two groups in this day, they didn't care for one another very much. Remember last week we talked about the fact that the wall that divided Jew and Gentile was high and wide and seemingly impenetrable. We also learn in Scripture that even after coming to Christ, those in the church, though they had been brought together, the Jews and Gentiles had been brought together, they still had issues, didn't they? On the one hand, you had the Jews telling the Gentiles that they needed to become more Jewish to be Christian. And on the other hand, you had those ministering to the Gentiles and non-Jewish Christians saying, no, 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 you need to become less Jewish to be Christian. So there's a lot of confusion in the early church and hard feelings on both sides due to personal prejudices and cultural differences and the church struggled to be unified. And so Paul, who knew this tension well between these two groups and who understood more than anyone the dangers of disunity, gives this call here in Ephesians chapter 2 for the church, for believers, Jew and Gentile, to be unified and to walk worthy together. Remember, I also said last week that when Paul first addresses this issue in this book, it's interesting, he doesn't say one thing about their behavior as believers. He doesn't say one thing about what they're to do to be unified. He does not address behavior here. He does not begin by telling this diverse group of Christians how they're to live together and how they're to treat one another, but simply explains to them what is true of them in Christ and how they've been brought together and how they've been made one in him. And again, the reason Paul begins in this way is because he knows for believers to be faithful in practice, they must first be sound in doctrine. He knows that before believers can walk worthy together, one must first understand how Christ has transformed them, how he has made them a new people, and how he has brought them together through the work that he accomplished at Calvary. We also said last week that because Paul ministered primarily to the Gentiles, he speaks primarily to them in this passage, which again is good news for us, right? Because that's who we are, non-Jewish Christians, right? So this message is for us, and what we learn from this message is it's extremely applicable for us today, is it not? It is, because there are many in our churches today who have issues with others in the church due to a number of different things. Because of race, because of gender, age, background, socioeconomic status. And these 
personal prejudices and cultural differences, they hinder our churches from being unified and walking worthy together. And they hinder us, church, from being strong witnesses for Christ and making an impact in his world for him. So folks, Paul's message here that we're going to look at today, it's for us, isn't it? And in these 12 verses at the end of Ephesians 2, Paul gives us several principles for how we are to overcome these barriers that divide us as believers and how we walk worthy together as a church. Last week, we spent the entire sermon on the first principle. We discussed first that in order for us to walk worthy together, we must first remember who we were before Christ. That's point number one. Remember... Who you were before Christ. Paul says in verses 11 and 12 that before we can walk worthy together, it's essential that we as believers remember who we were before Christ saved us. It's essential that we remember at one time, folks, we were outside of God's kingdom. We were outside of his covenant, outside of his promises. We were separated from his people and separated from his son and were therefore without God and without hope in our lives and world. Paul tells us that prior to salvation, we were on the outs with God. We were all in the same boat at one time. Sinners in need of salvation. And because salvation is solely a work of God, which we learn in the first part of Ephesians 2 that it is, and throughout Ephesians... Because that's the case, guess what? After salvation, we're all in the same boat. Though you are God's children, you are only God's children by God's grace. Therefore, there's no one in here more significant or more special or more deserving than anyone else. It's by God's grace. What's true of me is true of you. What's true of you is true of others in Christ There was a time when Brent Hale was without salvation. Sinner in need of salvation. Same as me. Now by God's grace, he and I are children of God. We've been saved by grace alone. We're in the same boat. Paul understood we have a tendency to view ourselves as being more significant, more valuable than others. And we have a tendency to look down on other brothers and sisters in Christ based upon a number of different things. But Paul makes the point here in the first part of this passage, verse 11 and 12, we have no grounds to do so, which is why he spends these first two verses really bringing his audience back down to size. You know why? Because Paul knows for them to be unified, they must first be humble. Paul knows that, forget this, unity to occur corporately, there must first be humility individually. That's what Paul understood. That's what the scriptures teach. Pride rips a church apart. Humility brings a church together. That's why Paul spends the first part of this passage saying what he does, and that's why it's essential. If we're going to walk worthy together, we must remember who we were before Christ. But not only that, we must also reflect on what has been done for us by Christ. Reflect on what has been done for you by Christ. Look at verse 13. Paul says, but now, 
Notice the transition. He has been talking about what was true of them before salvation, and then he transitions here with this phrase, from the past to the present. He says, but now, in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So Paul tells his Gentile audience here in this passage who they now are collectively as believers. He says, you Gentiles, you were once on the outs with God. You are outside of his kingdom, outside of his covenant, outside of his promises, separated from his people, and you were apart from his son. You were without hope and without God in your lives and world. But he says, now... In Christ, you who were once on the outs with God have been brought near to him. Now, how did that happen? Through their own personal efforts and devotion? Through their own works of righteousness? No, look at the end of verse 13. By the blood of Christ. Again, like Paul does in the first part of this chapter, He stresses, believers, that we have done nothing on our own for our salvation. We're not to blame for our salvation, are we? We can't take credit in that. He says our salvation is a gift from God. It's been accomplished by his son. Notice here, he says, he, Jesus, is our peace. And that's better translated, he alone is our peace. Folks, Jesus alone is our peace. And I believe this is referring both to our relationship with God and our relationship with one another. You see, at the fall, both relationships were broken. But in Christ, get this, both relationships are able to be mended. And Paul says, Jesus alone is our peace. Jesus alone has made peace between God and man and between man and man. He has made peace for both Jew and Gentile, black and white, male and female, young and old, educated and uneducated, rich and poor. And he has made all of them who trust in Christ one in him. He has broken down Paul says, Christ has in his flesh the walls that divide us. Now, what were the walls that divided the Jews and the Gentiles in the first century? Well, because there were a bunch of things, right? But I believe Paul is referring in particular to, at the end of verse 14, to the temple, the temple wall. In that day, there were walls in the temple that separated Jew and Gentile. There were areas in the temple where the Jews could go, but the Gentiles could not go because they were not God's chosen people. They were not the Jews. But Paul tells his Jewish and Gentile audience here, get this, Christ has broken down the wall 
that once divided them. Not only was the veil torn in the temple, folks, which symbolized God's separation from man, but the wall that divided man from man, Jew and Gentile, was also broken down by Christ as well. Paul says, now in Christ, there's no separation between these two groups. There are no longer Jew and Gentile, Jewish Christian and Gentile Christian, God's Jewish people and God's non-Jewish people. They're just people, God's people, just Christians. That's what he says here. Look down in verse 18. Skip down, look at it. He says, for through him, through Christ, we both... Jew and Gentile have access, have access in one spirit to the Father. Boy, that's a great verse there. That's a Trinitarian verse. We see Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in this verse. Get this. This is what Paul's saying here. Through Jesus, both Jew and Gentile are indwelled with the same Holy Spirit, and they, and they have access through that same spirit to the same Father. They're one. They're one. And Jesus alone has done this. Through the work he accomplished at Calvary, he brought Jew and Gentile together. Look at what else he did. Back up in the first part of verse 15. Paul says, By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. Now what is Paul talking about here? When he says Jesus abolished the law of commandments, does he now mean that murder is okay? Because of Jesus? Is that what he's saying? Is it now okay to steal and commit adultery? Is that the law that Christ abolished? No, notice the phrase expressed in ordinances. You know what Paul's talking about there? I'm not talking about the moral law of God. That never changes. Murder, always wrong. Theft, idolatry, adultery, always wrong. He's not talking about the moral law of God. He's talking about the ceremonial law. He states here, Christ abolished the ceremonial law. That's what that phrase means, expressed in ordinances. You see, at, at, at this time, nothing divided Jew and Gentile more than ceremonial observances. Ritual feasting and fasting and ritual dress and Sabbaths and circumcisions and so on. All of that, that was a major point of division between the two groups. Paul says, through Christ's person and work, he abolished all that. He abolished the law of commandments contained in ordinances. He abolished the ceremonial, the ritual, and traditional. For the longest time, the Jews and Gentiles, they could not associate with one another because of all these differences. They couldn't eat together. There were all these barriers that divided them and the ceremonies that, and, and the ceremonial laws that they had to adhere to. That all changed with Christ. Christ abolished all of those ordinances by fulfilling them. He fulfilled them. Paul says he's now brought you two together. You, he says, have lost your spiritual identity as a Jew, and you have lost your spiritual identity as a Gentile. Now, are they still different ethnically and physically? Yes, but spiritually, the two have been made one. Did Paul not say this in Galatians 3? Look at it up on the screen. Galatians 3, 28. Listen to this. 
There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And in verse 17 of Ephesians 2, Paul says, this is not only a work that Christ did for us, but this is also a message he preached to us. Look at it. Back in Ephesians 2, 17. And he, Jesus, came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those of you who were near. He's speaking to both Jew and Gentile here. And he says, this is not just my message. This is Christ's message. He says, this is not just what I'm calling you to do. This is the way Christ expects you to live as God's people. So if we're going to walk worthy together, we, we have to remember who we were before Christ. We have to reflect on the fact that, that, that Christ has done this great work in us and he has brought us together. He's made us one. Differences in all, he's brought us together and he's made us one. And lastly, to walk worthy together, it's essential also that we as believers realize who we now are in Christ. Realize who you now are in Christ. Who we were, what Christ has done, and who we now are. And who are we? Who are we as believers? Paul tells us in verses 19 through 22, and he uses some great metaphors here to describe us believers as God's people. The first metaphor he uses is this. He says, we who are in Christ are equal citizens of God's kingdom. We are equal citizens of God's kingdom. Look at verse 19. Paul says, because of Christ, you are no longer strangers and aliens. Stop there for a minute. Remember, Paul is primarily addressing Gentiles here. And at this time in the church, many Gentiles, though they're at one time outsiders, when it came to God and his people, remember they were separate physically and ethnically and socially and covenantally and spiritually, they had been grafted in. They had been made a part of the family of God. But though that was the case, many of them in that day were still being made to feel as if they were strangers, foreigners, and outsiders. At this time, many of the Jewish Christians thought, you know, we're here first. We've been here first. We are God's people through and through, much more so than you non-Jewish believers. Because many thought along these lines, they made many of the Gentiles feel as if they were second rate, lower class, because they were not Jewish. But Paul says no. That's wrong. There aren't two different groups. There aren't Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians with one being more important than another. No, Paul says to the Gentiles, you had one time you were separated in this way. There was a time when you were on the outs, you were foreigners, you were aliens, but no longer. Look at what he says, verse 19. He says, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but what? You are fellow citizens. You are equal citizens with the saints. He says, you have been brought together and you are now one in Christ. There's no such thing, folks, as first-tier and second-tier Christians, Jew and Gentile Christians. You're not 
first and second class in the kingdom of God. He says, no, both are equally God's people in Christ. There are some who are here this morning who feel that way at times. Some of you here probably feel that way. Maybe you feel like an outsider because you weren't raised up in a Christian home. Or maybe you grew up in another part of the country, not in the Bible Belt, the U.S., where there's a church on every corner. Maybe there's some of you here who feel as if you're outsiders because you're not as knowledgeable of the Bible as the next person and you feel inferior spiritually. I want to encourage you with Paul's words here this morning. If you are trusting in Christ for your salvation, you are a citizen of God's kingdom, same as me. Same as me. Same as all other believers. There's no such thing as second-tier Christianity. So don't let that mindset prevent you from being all that God has called you to be. Don't let that hinder you from growing and maturing in in godliness right alongside your other Christian brothers and sisters in Christ. Don't let that hinder you from walking worthy. Get this, when, when we realize this, I want you to understand this. Believers, when we realize that we're all equal citizens of God's kingdom as believers, and when we live in that reality, you know what happens? When a church realizes and applies this truth, you know what happens? The church begins to reflect the reality of the gospel. Let me explain what I mean. God's church has wonderful potential to be a powerful illustration of the gospel you ever looked at the church i mean people who attend the church they're from all different walks of life aren't they church is made up of male and female young and old people with different styles different tastes different interests different races different cultures rich and poor you know what the common bond is that holds all these people together christ christ in christ We become equal citizens of God's kingdom. You see, the church is made up of a group of unlikely people who no one would think would ever be together. People who may even at one time have been enemies. But the gospel and the Lord Jesus Christ brings them together like nothing else could. When this happens, the church becomes a strong illustration of God's gospel. That's why it's essential that we realize who we are and what Christ has done for us and who we now are in him so that we can come together as equal citizens of God's kingdom, differences and all, and reflect the reality of the gospel to the world out there. Second metaphor Paul uses in this passage is this. Not only are we equal citizens of God's kingdom, but we're equal members of God's family. Paul says the end of verse 19, you are members of the household of God. As if being citizens of God's kingdom were not enough. I mean, let's be honest, that's great in and of itself, right? Get this, God's work that he does through his son, it draws us even closer than that. Through Christ, we are made members of God's household. Paul says you are members of the household of God. In other words, you're family. Believers, we are family. We are family in Christ. 
And once again, Paul says this to make the point, there is no partiality. There is no favoritism in the family of God. You may have grew up in a family like that, that had partiality and that showed favoritism, but not in God's family. Listen, there are no black sheep in God's family. Do you know that? There aren't. Once again, at this time, that's the way the Gentiles felt. Many of them felt at this time as if they were black sheep of God's family. They, many of them thought, yeah, we're in, you know, we're in the family, but we're still outsiders. Paul says, no, you're not. Because you are trusting in Christ for your salvation, you are in the family. You've been brought in as a son or daughter in Christ. You're just as much a part of the family of God as anyone else because of your faith in Christ Jesus alone. And the application to be made here by us, folks, is simple. Because we have been brought into the household of God as believers, you know what? We're to live as a family. We're to live together as a family. It's what our Father wants. He wants us to learn to live together as believers, to live with our differences disagreeing agreeably if we need to, trying to find common ground if we can. But he wants us to live with our differences together as brothers and sisters in Christ, not in isolation with just him, but with him and with one another. There are many today when they have issues with people in the church, they say, you know what, I'm just going to go be the church on my own. I'm going to watch church from the house. I'm going to study my Bible on my own so I don't have to deal with God's people. No, God wants you to deal with his people. Good luck reading through the Bible and not finding that as an emphasis. It's all throughout the Bible. God wants us to live as a family. He doesn't want us to part ways. If God has called you out and made you a child of his, he has brought you into his family. Therefore, he wants you to value his family, love his family, remain connected to his family. There's a third metaphor he gives for us. Not only are we equal citizens of God's kingdom and equal members of God's family, but get this, we who are in Christ are also equal parts of God's structure. Equal parts of God's structure, equal parts of God's building. Now, that's a little strange. Doesn't fit real nicely here with with the three here, but that's what Paul says. That's the imagery he uses. Look at verse 20 through 22. Paul says this, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the spirit. Notice here, Paul says that we are parts of God's structure, part of his building. Now, now what is Paul getting at here with this metaphor he uses? What he's telling us is this. God is building a community of people. Do you know that? He is. He is building a community of redeemed people. That's what he's up to. And the apostles and the prophets, they play a pivotal role in that they were a part of the foundation of this building. Now, I think this text offers up a good argument 
for the fact that there are not still apostles and prophets today as there were in the first century. Because Paul refers to them here as the foundation. They played a pivotal and foundational role in the constructing of God's building initially. Now, it's just a metaphor. We, don't, we want to be careful not to push details of a metaphor too far to develop our theology, but I think it's one of those passages that gives us an argument for that. The apostles and the prophets, they are the foundation of God's building. Now, what have they done? They, they've paved the way for us, haven't they? They're the foundation. They've written God's revelation for us. They've taken the message about Christ out to the world. And because of their obedience, because of their faithfulness, the gospel eventually spread to us, did it not? And God's word eventually came to us. And notice Paul also says the chief cornerstone of this building is the Lord Jesus. Now, this is a little different than the way we think of a cornerstone today. It was different in the early church. When we think of a cornerstone today, we think of something that's more kind of symbolic and decorative in nature, right? With the name plate on it that, that gives the year of when the building was built. But, but this is not the idea that the early church would have had when reading this. The cornerstone in the first century, get this, was the very first stone. And it was the standard by which all other stones were measured for a particular structure. You see where Paul's going with this? That's where we are. We are cut from Christ. It's a reminder to us, once again, the church exists and only exists because of Jesus. He's the reason we have life. He's the one we're all looking to and striving to be like. If it were not for him, there would be no us, right? He is the cornerstone. Look at verse 21. Paul says, In whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Now this verse here explains what our role is in this whole process of building up this structure. Here's what we're to be doing, folks, according to this verse and many others. We're to be coming behind Christ's work as the cornerstone and behind the work of the apostles and the prophets who laid the foundation for us, and we're going to be coming alongside them, behind them, and building up and completing this structure, the church. We're to be using the message that they wrote down for us, the message Christ preached to us. We're to be taking that. We're to be reading it and studying it and growing up in godliness and looking to Christ and striving to be like him and, and pursuing godliness. And we're to be pouring our lives into other people in the church so that they're built up, so that the church is built up, so that this structure of the church can be completed. That phrase, joined together, gives us a picture of bricks being laid. Now, once again, this is where context comes in. It's a lot easier to do that today than it was in that day. Once again, knowing the context in the early church, it helps us here. In the first century, the joining together, the putting together of a structure was a much more rigorous process. It involved chipping away and smoothing out stones so that this structure could be built and be steady and firm and strong. That's the process of discipleship, is it not? That's the work that must take place in us. There must be a chipping away at us and a smoothing out and bringing us together. That's discipleship. This is a work that we must allow to take place in us. 
We must allow God to chip away at us through his word. We must be smoothed out and formed to to fit what his word says we should be. It's a process that must take place. It's essential that we allow God to chip away at us and smooth us down so that we become less like us and more like Christ. And so that we can be joined together with others who are like-minded and Christ-like so that we as a church can become what Paul says we're to become at the end of this chapter here, a holy dwelling place where God's presence is felt. Folks, this is what God wants us to become right here. This is why Jesus gave his life, did he not? It is. He not only gave his life to bring us to God, but he gave his life up to bring us together as a people. We often fail to realize there were two relationships that were destroyed at the fall. When Adam and Eve sinned, God's relationship with man was ruined, but so was man's relationship with with one another. And of course, we see this in the very first book of the Bible, chapter 4. Right after the fall, one chapter later, we have Cain killing Abel. We have a brother killing another brother. That should show us things have gone terribly wrong in our relationships. And that's a result of the fall. And we see this every day. We we, we see results of of the fall in this way each and every day, don't we? On a daily basis, we see brothers and sisters fighting, friends arguing, husbands and wives divorcing, the church splitting. What's the answer? What's the Sunday school answer? Everyone back there in that room back there could give you this answer. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. Jesus is the answer. Through his person and work, he has provided a way for us to be made right with God. And, and, and he has done that through his, through his life, death, and resurrection. And folks, to repair the broken relationships that we have with one another, listen, we must first have our relationship with God repaired. That's where it starts. That's only possible through the person and work of his son, the Lord Jesus Again, Paul says, he alone, Jesus alone is our peace. Only through receiving his work on our behalf, the work that he has accomplished for us, and by trusting in him alone for salvation, can we truly experience the peace he provides. Let's pray.